1: Welcome everyone to this live edition of Screen Talk. Thrilled to have another one of these. I'm Eric Cohn, the Executive Editor, joined as always by Ann Thompson, our Editor-at-Large, as well as two very special guests. Carrie Putnam, CEO of the Sundance Institute, as well as Tabitha Jackson, the director of the Sundance Film Festival. A couple months ago, your intro would have been the new director of the Sundance Film Festival, but I think we can stop saying "new." You've been <laughs> in the job long enough now, right?
2: Oh, I know. I got to get through the first festival before I stop being new.
1: <laughs> okay. <laughs> now, now the that- Sundance <laughs> Film Festival. Thanks for being here. It's, it's, we're really excited about this conversation because obviously, so much has changed in the world since Sundance happened in January. It feels like another era and we have so much we want to get into and we should say up front that while we have some really serious questions that we want to get into we also are very much you know pro Sundance both Anne and I have been to Sundance many times over the years and our careers have uh, benefited considerably from being in that environment so on some level we are, we are advocates for the success and survival of the Institute and this festival. And there's a lot that we want to know about what you've been up to and how you're looking to the future. Um, so I want to start by sort of bringing people up to speed on some of the updates that we've received uh, with respect to the state of Sundance and the health of the Institute. Now um, Sundance has on the one hand suffered many of the similar challenges we've seen a lot of arts organizations go through um, You've consolidated some of your labs. Thirteen uh, percent of your staff was uh, laid off, but at the same time, you've also uh, advanced a million dollars uh, towards um, supporting artists during the pandemic. So, uh, Carrie, I was I wanted to start with you, and and maybe you can talk to us a little bit about um, how Sundance Institute's uh, mission has evolved because there was a statement that you and uh tabitha and michelle satter released at the time when this uh this fund was announced where you said that you can't go back to business as usual so now that that was back in april so so in terms of where we're at right now what is business as usual for the sundance institute uh i,
3: I don't uh, thanks eric and and uh i don't think there is business as usual right now i can't i can't imagine um I can't imagine a more challenging time to be operating. And frankly, the um, the imagination and the evolution and the agility seems to be the only thing that I can be sure is business as usual is just trying to um, create a space where we can be responsive to what's going on and continue to adapt. So um, that's the new normal, uh, at least as far as I can see. I think, um, you know, a lot of people have asked me, what, how do you how do you reconcile um, layoffs and the economic impact on the operations of the Institute with being able to you know, create a, an emergency fund for artists of that scale? Um, it's, it, it, it's confusing, but I, I'll, I'll just unpack that a little bit. Um, you know, we were incredibly lucky to have our festival last year, obviously one of the last events before the pandemic. And um, we just count ourselves lucky because it enabled us to, for the most part, um, have the revenue come in that we're used to operating as a nonprofit during our fiscal year. And so um, when the pandemic hit, we were, um, we did experience some revenue loss, but we were able to really focus, um, focus on our mission, focus on the artist. We had, we had stability coming out of the, um, uh, coming out of the festival, we were able to stay stable. So we redesigned our season of labs. Um, we, we focused on Collab, our digital platform, which we're really proud of now has um, 100,000 members and a quarter, quarter um, of a million people taking fan- advantage of our free events now. So really leaning into digital. And what happened with that is the, the money that got freed up because we didn't have our live labs, was able to be repurposed towards this granting fund in addition to some of the grants that we already had in place being redirected. So we, we felt it was really important to um, support artists, artists in urgent ways rather than in the usual ways. Um, so the Adapted Labs, um, all digital, 104 artists came through, very different experience, but I think quite wonderful. Uh, and then the granting fund was deployed to artists in need, is being deployed to um, artists who uh, to organizations who work with historically underrepresented groups um, because we all know that the impact of the pandemic has been disproportionate on black and brown and indigenous artists Um, and artists in particular i think we found in a survey we did are um, the most uh, most of them are freelance and some of the most vulnerable populations right now. So we felt it was really urgent to to move our usual creative support into urgent granting. So that's why we okay. did that.
1: Yeah, and, and how much of that grant has been dispersed at this point?
3: So we've dispersed about two-thirds of it. We're announcing next week uh, the recipients of the organizational portion, which is uh, about 40%, 40%, 35%, 40%. Wow.
1: So that'll be interesting. And, and Tabitha, on your end, given all of these different changes that Sundance has done in the immediate sense to uh, to support filmmakers how do you see some of these changes sort of reflecting um, the decisions you'll be making for the way that the festival is organized and the kinds of films that you're looking to uh, support that way
2: although the um, although this is you know these are really tough times for artists as Kerry said and tough times for everybody um, I think the thing that we have we are lucky enough to be able to hold on to is a kind of really clear mission and purpose around supporting the independent voice for uh elevating voices and ideas and work that that um you know is innovative maybe unheard maybe traditionally marginalized but but bringing that to the center and lifting it up that's what we're that's what we're here for and i really believe in in but the kind of cultural and social and often political power of uh, independent artists. So that remains the same. Everything has changed around us, but that remains the same, excuse me. So um, now the the question is, how do we manifest the same things that we've always stood for? How do we manifest the qualities uh, of the festival if it has to be in a different form, so it, it's it is challenging, but it's also an opportunity to figure out what we could do now that we weren't able to do before. So one of those things, you know, a big one for us is accessibility. It's completely wonderful, as you both know, to be on top of that mountain in Utah, as everybody is gathered, 120,000 people gathered to watch films together. Um, it's wonderful. It still needs to be wonderful if we do it in a different way. People still want to gather around films and we can't, as we are learning. So, you know, week by week, we, we can't, there are some things we have to let go of, you know, in life as well as work. And one of the things we have to let go of is this kind of obsession with physicality. We love it. And, uh, we value it and it will be the, the the kind of priority in whatever the new normal is. As soon as we are able to gather in person physically, we will to the extent that we are able. But in the meantime, let's still have the films, let's still have the filmmakers, let's still have the audience and just make it as good as we can in these less physical circumstances. I mean, it's still there. We know. We know the wonder of going to a cinema uh, and being with people and watching it on the big screen. And we know that we can enjoy in a different way, watching on a small screen at home. That's what we've been doing. So we we um, uh, we just have to just change our mindsets sl- slightly, but it's hard because there is so much hope that we are all feeling that at some point we can be together again around a big screen. And we will be, but in the meantime, let's do something else.
1: Okay. okay. So, can I start? I just want to ask a, a very specific question about that because it's been coming up a lot. These questions of virtual festivals. Um, the one thing that we've seen is that you know on the industry side, people are saying you know we can sell movies to buyers without the premiere. We don't necessarily need to make a film available in a virtual lineup to do that. So what is the incentive now uh, on the on the programming side to entice films to be a part of the lineup? But what do they benefit from? in that context, irrespective of what, you know, what the physical edition of the festival might look like?
2: Well, I think, and t- so first point, Eric, is that we we are, the, the plans for Sundance are, it's one festival. So it will have live elements as we can, and it will have uh, online elements for sure, whatever happens. So it's one festival. So why we want, uh, films to come into our festival is because we are still, as we do ever at the beginning of every single year, attract the attention and energy and focus of so many people who want to know what artists around the world have been making. And so that will still be the case. We will do, we are in the process of a big curation job. Last year we had uh, 15,000 films that we're going through and watching every single one of them and picking out ones that we want to say to people, you should watch this or you should watch this this filmmaker. You should know this filmmaker. It's still a place of discovery. So from the moment that the films are announced, you know, right through the, right through the festival and out the other side, as they're kind of received by audiences um, and carried into the culture by critics and journalists and, 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 people who will take notice of those things. So that doesn't change. And that helps build buzz around films, particularly in this indie space, small films that need to be lifted up and carried so that people can understand what they've been missing or what they might newly encounter. So all that is really important. And also just on a more kind of nuts and bolts level, um, we are, as Kerry said, we're really lucky to have been able to put the festival on in January. We are even luckier that... that, um, the the kind of uh, cohort of festivals are now, Eric, you pointed this out recently, talking to each other, working together, understanding that we get through this only by holding hands and moving forward. So we are both championing the fall festivals as they are able to go forward, mourning the ones that can't, and also learning from what works and what doesn't. We want our festival to work in the best way possible for all our constituencies artists whose work is meeting the world for the first time, industry who want to either buy or sell films to get to audiences and audiences who want to see the films in the best possible conditions. And, you know, for us that's success, but so are these kind of more intangibles of, as you know, from the festival kind of serendipity that encounter the proximity and interaction between an artist and an audience who's just encountered their work. So that stuff is going to remain um, that's why we want films to recognize that this festival is still an opportunity for them. So
4: Tabitha, I'm curious, what kind of volume are you seeing? Is it the same that it would ordinarily be, the
2: submissions, or is it down? At the moment it's the same, which is interesting, but, but it's not that surprising. Um, you know, obviously the, the uh, films who, whose production has stopped would not have been submitting until later anyway. So I think that's where we're gonna be watching out for um, a drop off and a decline. Um, while simultaneously understanding yeah. because of the conditions of other festivals, are we seeing more films coming in that we wouldn 't normally have seen so we 're just trying to we 're just braced for uncertainty as we have been for the last four or five months
4: so Carrie, what would the circumstances be at what point will you have to say there there cannot be a physical festival
3: yeah it's a it 's a great question i we 've just been planning and meeting and thinking about this. I think um, you know at a certain point one you make a huge investment in a physical festival of of, of any scale and I, I keep thinking about it like a sort of like a mixing board with the different elements. So you have the uh, the digital festival, you have the festival in Utah and, and then you have these um, additional um, hubs of the festival that we're talking about that are live. Um, we can turn the volume up and down on those different pieces, um, but it's an allocation of a very finite set of resources. So how we think about that, when we think about that, is something we're working through right now. Um, Certainly we're going full steam for the full palette of the idea um, until it proves that it's uh, from a safety and public health perspective not possible. Um, So we have some dates. We'll take a look A few times over the course of the fall, we've set some dates and um, we'll keep everybody posted once we have some sense of uh, criteria and how we're going to look at that.
4: Wow. And Tamitha, you guys have been thinking about possibly changing the dates of the festival, moving it back a week. Why would you do that? What would it serve? What are the positives and negatives? How do you make that decision?
2: Yeah. I mean, the, it was within, with all the uncertainty of you know, to what extent we'll be able to gather <clears throat> in person, how will fe- people feel about traveling? How will people feel about being in all, you know, even socially distanced cinemas? Then we have a, a presidential inauguration, which is uh, due on our on our date, which was the opening, which is the 21st of, of January. It's literally the day before. Um, in one sense, it's wonderful because the the festival, as festivals should, like capture a moment. And Obama,
4: I, I remember it. It, it was, it was
2: exactly very joyous. That. Me too. <laughs> um, I think in this year, because the festival will take a different form and because we will do much more, we will need to do much more kind of speaking to potential audiences about what the festival is and how to do it. It'll be much more kind of um, marketing up front so people understand what it is. We actually don't want to be competing with a massive political ceremonial event like that this year. So, if we can just shift it a week down to the 28th, start on the 28th, um, I think that would just give us all a bit more of a space to breathe. So, have you made
4: that that call? Have you have you decided to do that? Are you
2: announcing it right now? I am, (laughs) and I wish I could. We have made the call that that is what we would wish to do. What we now are doing, we are in discussion with with Park City and there are some uh, in August when the, the city needs to officially ratify that. But so watch, watch this space in August because as soon as we can say for sure, I know we need to because people plan so far in advance for, for Sundance. We're, we're kind of deeply aware of that.
4: People also plan far in advance for Oscars.
1: I
2: was
4: hoping to Sorry, <laughs> this is my this is my world. I have a monomaniacal. Let's get obsession. It away. <laughs> but but this could be a very new uh, set of submissions for you. Things have been delayed. Some of the fall festivals may not get some of the titles that aren't finished. Some of them may be finished in time for Sundance. It could be used as a launch platform whether you want it to be What's your approach? What's your, your approach to this? People must be asking you this.
2: Yeah, I mean, I think with, with, with all things, and sorry if I sound like I'm kind of on message, but this is, this is really true. So we have to be open to the new possibilities. And that certainly is a possibility as long as we stay close to our mission and purpose, and that is independent film and uh, lifting up the voices of of. Uh, artists in that way. So and, if they offer you Dune, you're going to turn it down. I'm just—it's <laughs> going to be open already. I'm just kidding. Go I ahead. mean, it will be. It will be. I'd love it if people wanted to see uh, Sundance as a great opportunity to launch their film. If it's the if it's a Sundance film, yeah. um, so there is no there is no film that is too big or too small for Sundance. There are films that just aren't uh, fit, and we broadly know what those are. And I think you know the industry is smart enough to know that that too so but yeah it's a different it's a different moment for sure.
1: I have a question for both of you it's interesting you both talked about or you remember fondly the Obama inauguration because I remember that one but I also remember the the other guy getting inaugurated four years ago and what that experience was like at the festival and and the women's march that happened there and You know, the the experience of being at Sundance in that particular moment was fascinating because it it started the narrative off for the year and also for a certain moment in conversations about creativity and crisis that were very much, you know, still in the heart and and have accelerated since then. And in the last few months, we've talked about, um, you know, the the extreme racial inequality in this country and, and every aspect of society is sort of going through this. Now, Kerry, you you address this to some degree in terms of how Sundance is supporting more, you know, uh, people of color, marginalized communities, especially in in the sense that they've been hard hit by the pandemic. But I'm wondering, you know, we're all being forced to kind of consider where where we're wearing blinders, where, where there's more work to be done. And I'd be curious to know from your perspective for the Sundance Institute, as well as the festival, where you think um, there is real work that needs to be done, where 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 can you sort of improve on the, on the diversity front?
3: Yeah, Tab, do you, wanna, do you want me to start here? Because we-
2: Yeah, we, go for it as okay. a quick thought and then I can chime in about that.
3: <laughs> okay. Um, you know, I mean, I just want to start by saying the idea of systemic racism isn't new. Um, I think the energy and momentum Around eradicating it and moving towards justice um, is is cresting in a way that's incredibly exciting, and um, we're very committed to being part of that. Uh, and, and I, you know, uh, I would I would point your attention to something that we published a couple I don't know maybe a couple weeks ago, which was some of our commitments and some of our own demographics. You know, we wanted to start by looking um, not just at the work we do supporting artists, but also at our own institutional. Um, uh kind of contributions to an anti-racist environment, and we recognize that um, while we were I, i'm I, I think founded and from an idea of including many voices, including having indigenous people at the very first labs as part of the uh, sort of founding experience, um, and of course, I think you know, uh, we've supported the careers and and the creative practices of of an incredibly um, diverse array of storytellers. Um, we also recognize that we have work to do to make sure that our own spaces are um, safe for everyone and that and that our organization represents the world in the fullest way possible so um, and even even in terms of how we run how we think about um, you know how we think about selecting vendors or work there's there 's a lot of work we can do, and we want we 're really leaning into that on our on our sort of operational side on the on the artist side I think it 's I think it's a question of um, continuing to seek out the widest array of voices we can, continuing to elevate black, brown, indigenous voices, and um, and perhaps, um, Really expanding in some ways how we think about representation in our programs, Um, but we'll never program or make curatorial decisions based on um, you know quotas. We we've we've achieved I think the work we've achieved by having that as a sort of a foundational value, um, and we want to continue to do so.
1: Yeah, and Tabitha, I'd love to hear your perspective on on the programming front. I mean, obviously, Sundance has made. Some strong uh, made, uh, inroads in terms of diversifying its, its lineup in the last. I don't remember the specific figures offhand, but in terms of the competition, the mm-hmm. uh, of, uh, people of color I think was some somewhere in like the 50ish percent dial uh, last last year. And um, I'm curious to know what you may, you know entering into the, the festival conversation as as a director now when that kind of progress has been made. Um, you know how how are you looking to continue that and, and see it uh, go further?
2: Well, I, I think it's, you know, it's an extraordinary time um, to be coming into such a, a position. We have curatorial resources, as an institute we have financial resources, and we are in this age of accountability and reckoning. You know, clearly for me, from my background, kind of Brit is the most notable thing in in an institution like Sundance, but also from, you know, African descent, Um, and coming from a non-fiction background where the conversations about um, authorship and curation and who is allowed to tell stories, um, that conversation has been, been, you know, vibrant almost since Flaherty's Nanook of the North um, the the kind of anthropological perspectives that can happen in, in non-fiction. But now in this festival role, um, really, again, those questions of authorship are active and vibrant and urgent. Who gets to tell the stories? How are we thinking about that as, as, as curators? Um, but also, who are we? Who are the screeners? Who are the programmers? Um, what are our blind spots? I'm talking to you in terms of questions because these are long, complicated conversations that need to be made explicit. We need to go through the discomfort of talking about that. And we need to look back at the decisions we've made to understand what that system and structure has led to. However, I'm also incredibly proud. And one of the reasons I feel so lucky to have been handed the keys to the festival is because there has been an almost 40 year history of elevating underrepresented voices and alternative perspectives on almost everything. So um, I want to be fully conscious of what we need to do better whilst not negating what we have managed to achieve and building on that. Um, but it's, uh, you know, it's a thin line between, between um, uh, a kind of complacency that just allows things to stay the same and a kind of radical discomfort that will lead to, um, a better festival
1: just following up on we're that we're looking okay.
2: forward
1: yeah i mean i, I love hearing about all this stuff and and obviously your your background in documentary is one that we've followed closely and appreciated over the years because of the way that discourse surrounding nonfiction storytelling has become such a vibrant part of our culture and i love when sundance kind of teases those boundaries you know whatever the happened with the ross brothers documentary to get that into the documentary competition last year i thought was a fascinating result you know you had you've had documentaries win writing awards at the festival in the past so i'm curious how much you want to kind of break those walls down i mean are are, are we going to have a, a doc competition and a, and a narrative competition for the foreseeable future or could you see a moment in time where those kind of barriers become irrelevant
2: uh i think also this is a this is a great conversation that we are having we've been talking about even from small things, sorry about the, the more outside, small things like the naming of, you know, constantly this naming of, of, um, of fiction as being dramatic or narrative or feature and or movies and then documentary being something other. But even talking about what if we call things fiction and nonfiction leads to, leads to a, a, a fascinating rabbit hole of what does this even mean? Where are the lines? What's apparent to me, Eric, is that that I think we are talking about cinema and there's a difference. I think the main difference between fiction and nonfiction is in the ethical responsibility and baggage that nonfiction carries in a different way to fiction. Beyond that, artists, like you mentioned the Ross Brothers, they make movies. They are not as hung up on the categories, the distinctions which place it has to sit and then the justification of how it can possibly sit in that. The artists are just making the work. It's it's institutions and festivals that are trying to categorize it because it's helpful. So um, I'm not avoiding your question, but I am a bit because I think these questions of categories are uh, fundamental to how we understand the role of the work and what it's, what it's doing. One of the reasons, If we decide to keep those categories of non-fiction and fiction or documentary and dramatic or whatever, um, is that documentary, not at Sundance, but documentary generally is seen as the, 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 I wouldn't say lesser, but the kind of little sibling of the grown-up, uh, uh, largely resourced fiction world. And, uh, to keep those categories and to preserve a space for non-fiction work, um, is very healthy uh but i would i do enjoy i mean just just personally and from my background i have enjoyed those spaces in between where as an audience member you ask yourself as we should be doing what am i watching what are its claims to truth how do i see human experience reflected what are the ethical dimensions of this so i like the space in between um, but we have to we kind of just have to balance the practicalities of making sure everything's represented. I mean, I think though, in something like, as we look at the next section, um, I would love to see us have much more nonfiction work represented in the next section. Uh, documentary nonfiction is so vibrant in its form. It actually really shouldn't be remarkable that Bloody Nose Empty Pockets was in the, was in the dot competition. Um, I think there's a way that we can go further in exploring that this dialogue between fiction and nonfiction is something I've always been interested in.
4: Well in the real economic world of, 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 the, of, of the film industry uh, documentaries are actually super successful and are burgeoning and, and growing. And, uh, and there's an argument that the best stuff out of Sundance does come from the documentary side has been for a long time.
1: Um, Years ago when it was, um, uh, the the Banksy documentary and Catfish were like the right two yeah movies.
4: no I mean it's often the most exciting stuff. I'm glad you can expand into next if you do that. Um, so Carrie, for you, I'm I'm jumping over to the business side a bit. Um, so we are watching the industry go through a a rapid change that has been pushed faster by the pandemic, and we can sort of see the shifting plates uh, coming into focus now. Um, But this is putting a lot of pressure on theatrical. It's making uh, filmmakers, uh, as you stated earlier, all of you, uh, put put them under much more duress. What can Sundance do to adapt to the needs of the digital streaming VOD universe if theatrical is really not where anybody's going to end up these days? You used to say that a very small percentage of people um, coming out of Sundance ever made their money back. You know, it's still true.
3: Yeah. I mean, I think, I think when you, um, first of all, I don't, I don't think we we're certainly agnostic about where films choose to go after Sundance, um, in terms of we've always embraced streaming. We've always embraced, um, theatrical. And I think, I think we try to listen to what the artists want in terms of what their goals are. Is it that cinematic experience? Is it the reach that, 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 um, uh, a digital distribution can provide. so so, from the perspective of what we can do, I think creating an open space where um, people can connect with films and figure out how best to get them distributed in order to meet the objectives of the artists is really at the center of what we do. but but I think I think with with um, a bit more specificity in terms of the economics of the business, it is challenging. It is challenging when the number of um, buyers, especially um, now is is constricting and the resources for those that are not one of the big streamers um, are challenged as they are for anybody who's working primarily in in live um, cinema and I think um, I do I do worry that that the um, the the films that the streamers will take will have a great reach and that will be wonderful but the ones that they choose not to take are gonna have perhaps fewer options because because of the consolidation that's happened and because of the resource constraints that are existing in the pandemic. So I think our goal is to, as Tabitha said earlier, really shine a light on those that, that we still think are wonderful um, and, and that are the reason for the curation, shine a light hard on those films, be, be sure that we're connecting them with people um, both domestically and internationally who can get them out there. And I think just, just last thing, because of the format of the festival this year, I think we'll be able um, to engage a wider range of press and industry um, who Good. may not always be able to afford to come to Sundance, or um, we'll be able to engage a, a wider range of public potentially um, in the in the physical and in the digital manifestations. And to me, that begins to create buzz and evangelists for titles that might appeal to different pockets of audiences and may I not like be, yeah.
4: I like that. What are you going to be do, trying to do more? I think you have an affiliation with the Art House Convergence. Are you going to be trying to help the Art House circuits uh, survive this? I,
3: I want. I mean, I think the um, the core of the idea, and I'll, Tabitha, I'll turn it to you in a second. But the core of the idea of what we're calling the sort of um, networked live festival is mm-hmm. is to lean on and and to partner with those cinemas.
2: Oh, Tabitha. Yeah. We are well what we're doing um, I mean you know our, our affinity and affiliation with the art house convergence and recognizing the, the crucial role that, that independent art houses play in our ecosystem um, year round we also recognize that they are on their knees at the moment and um, you know there was already precarity in how our ecosystem works but that um, they're being hit of course particularly hard so if there was a way Uh, for us to be of any support to show any gesture of solidarity um, and a meaningful gesture of partnership then that's what we're trying to do so we are engaged in uh, talking to different art houses across America to understand where they are and what they can do what they think they might be able to do in January um, as a kind of in-person manifestation but regardless of that There are some who are at the centers of communities. People want to gather around film and there are vibrant communities. People wanna talk about the issues raised by film, um, exult in the beauty of films together. So we want to and will be working with about 20 communities across the the US to to manifest that so that they're kind of um, co-presenting the Sundance Film Festival 21. It will come, it will be in many locations it will be in the whole um, kind of multiverse through the online platform, and so uh, it will be more than the sum of its parts, and that's conceptually very exciting um, in reality, of course, really complicated, so that's what we're going through at the moment and you know collaboration and community the only way we can make this idea work is by is by really digging into those things, and the community is the community that includes not just art houses, but also artists, also audiences, also people who want to buy films and sell films. So we, which I think, well, my voice is a bit shot, going through many, many conversations with people to understand if we were to do this, what would the implications be for you from your position? And so we definitely will have blind spots about what does and doesn't work for people. And we're trying to to listen and refine, listen and refine, um, which is part of the reason we sent out, uh, it wasn't an announcement, but it was a, a kind of insight into our thinking so that we we can, circul- we can socialize this idea about a festival that is, uh, is in Utah, but also coming down from the mountain to be in communities with uh, providing different contexts. What does that mean? What are the implications? For example, just giving an example of one. We'll be in Utah, but also uh, it takes us back to the kind of uh, Tony Morrison quote of what can we do from where we are? If we're, we're assuming that people may be reluctant to travel or may be a, unable to afford travel or just travel's not possible, although we are able to, to gather, where are the places where there's a kind of critical mass of artists and or industry and or press? LA is an obvious one. New York is another obvious one when we start talking about New York, we realize that if you show your film as part of Sundance and it shows in New York, that's going to have an implication on your New York premiere further down the line. So who do we need to talk to to understand what that is? Is there Mm. any way of mitigating those effects? And how Mm. do artists feel about it? Every decision we're making by decontextualizing the bits of the festival that all used to happen in Utah over 10 days and spreading them out.
4: And then there are other cities like Chicago that have their own film festivals that would be impacted.
2: yes, that's interesting yeah, so we also and that's such a key point Anne we're also talking to the local regional festivals to make sure that we are treading lightly or perhaps understanding that we shouldn't tread there at all because there is a system that works and we will be overly disruptive. Wow. So that's why luckily we've got six <laughs> months to do it but it's going to take a long time and we're going to miss things but all we can do is to try our best and welcome uh, input and insights and cautions and opportunities from our broader community. I
4: know Eric has a question but I just want to say that this is very exciting to me this kind of rethinking and innovation and uh, some good things could very well come out of it that would never have occurred otherwise. Go ahead, Eric.
1: Yeah, I mean, I was on on that. I mean, I always get a kick out of uh, trying to take Sundance to task for whatever changes you've made. I mean, you mentioned the next program and that was so much fun to, to see all those films the first time that program launched and try to understand what it was doing from a programmatic standpoint. And, you know, when you shake things up, I think, for those of us who are actually excited to, you know, be at the forefront of discovering new films and, and, and filmmakers, you know, it's an opportunity for us to really ask the hard questions and understand where this industry is going. And we, we, I could ask you more about that, but we have a lot of really good questions coming in from people. So I want to make sure we leave some time for right. a few of them. And this one is, I think, a good one to lead with because it's very uh, specific and it comes from Sean Farnell. He's got a lot of numbers in here. So I, I don't know exactly uh, about all the math, but he, he what, what he's asking I think is important. He says that, so, so Sundance receives approximately 15,000 submissions. Tabitha mentioned that earlier. He says the medium submission fee is $72 or so for approximate submission revenues of a million. Selection rates are around 2 to 3%. I realize these are ballpark numbers. Fees can be waived, etc., but he's asking you to speak to submission fees and the selection process in the context of an aspirational culture where the vast majority of submitted productions have zero chance of being selected
2: mm. yeah that's a that's a wow. great question thanks Sean. Um, so we had big conversations about submission fees uh, of course before submissions opened and what it means in this year. Um, the reality is that with 15,000 submissions, and we commit to watching all of them all the way through, those submissions will be watched all the way through, it takes uh, a pretty big number of people to do it, and those people need to be paid, and that's how we pay them. Um, the, you know, We're a non-profit institute and a non-profit festival, so the money that comes in through submission fees is enabling us to put the festival on, which in turn, we hope, if we do our job right, is supporting those filmmakers that that get in for sure and supporting the realm of independent uh, filmmaking and independent culture. Um, uh, It's hard though, because we recognize that so many filmmakers don't get in. It's a very competitive festival. That's why the stakes are high. Um, I don't say this flippantly. It is for filmmakers to determine whether they can afford that submission fee. We try to keep them as low as possible uh, and still enable us to do our work. But without them, we can't have the screeners, and without the screeners, we can't go through the fifteen thousand films that we that we get submitted. I hope that I hope that feels right as an answer. But it it was a point of uh, intense discussion amongst us around equity and yeah. this year. Kerry, did you yeah, want to add? Yeah, I just
3: that? want to add. This applies um, just to be um transparent this applies to the Sundance labs too with not the same percentages necessarily but the um there is a a fee to apply for the Sundance labs for the same reasons and I just want to say um everything Tabitha said I agree with but also um something I think one of you said which is um having to do things differently and think more deeply about equity and think more deeply about access. We've always given waivers and and, and tried to be responsive to need, but to create a more explicit um way of doing that perhaps to perhaps to revisit when we're not in such economic strife um, what this looks like is something that needs to be on the table um, and, and needs to be thought of in terms of what artists can uh, what burden we place on artists um, in order to sustain our work um, I recognize there's tension in that and I think we need to we need to name it and we need to look at it and see how we can build our budgets and build our process in ways that enable us to be both equitable and sustainable. So that's the challenge. And I, I want to say a little bit more about the budget because I a lot of people have been, um, we've been so um, it's been very hard for us to have had those layoffs and to have you know the the uh, I love the way Tabitha says shortage of resources doesn't mean shortage of ideas. I think you can hear that from her. I see it in Michelle Satter. I see it in the team. But I, I do want to explain just a little bit more about the about the way the econo- economics before we go to questions. Um, our our. Fiscal year ends in August, which means starting September 1st, we have a fresh set of um, both uh, expenses and income to look at. And it is this next festival despite the incredible ideas that isn't going to have, and the next year that isn't going to have the resources because ticket sales, because contributions, because the economy. So it was looking ahead to that next year, even though we were lucky enough to have our festival this year, that has caused us to have to make some of the cuts we made. And I just wanted to make that clear to people listening and and to you guys.
4: Have you been able to hang on to a lot of your sponsors?
3: you know we're, we're, we're right in the middle of those conversations. I'm so uh, incredibly impressed with our team and it feels like the idea of the festival, the potential wider audience, the potential multiple ways of activating, it feels exciting I think and it feels like possibilities. So, so far so good but we, we you know we're very hopeful, we really need to um, and uh, it's, it's thanks to the ideas of the team I think that, that hopefully we will.
1: The resources issue actually leads into another good audience question from Devin Edwards, who says, "Being that Sundance is heavily staffed with volunteers, what will that process look like? Is there a limited presence? If there is a limited presence on the ground, will that be local volunteers only?"
2: That's uh, thanks for that question, Devin. I mean, uh, we're again because we're six months out, we're not we're not um, avoiding the question, but we're in these discussions. So the volunteer question is a is an important is an important one, certainly there 'll be a, a big presence in utah that 's our home that 's where the majority of audiences come from for you know the last few years it 's only been forty percent of the one hundred and twenty thousand ish people that come from out of state so that we are still hoping for large audiences to to watch the films which will uh, that will need volunteers. As we think about the, um, the online presence, this is an interesting area we're moving into. So we're talking about racial uh, equity and justice before and some of our practices. We began thinking about that right at the end of the last festival. And what is it to create a safe space? Then we were thinking about what is it to create a safe space on a mountain with kind of strong door policies, um, a very visible police presence. we were thinking about that then. Now we are going into um, the online space. What does it mean to create a safe space online? One of the things that we're going to need are moderators, people around, people just taking care of what's going on, making sure it is a safe space. I suspect that will be some highly trained up volunteers. And it's a lot of people talking to our, our digital platform team. It's a lot of people that will be required. So they will be dispersed and scattered as the festival is being. Um, and, you know, I think for the art houses, as we're thinking about it, um, if we're in person that people who are 2200 volunteers all live in different places, they might want to approach those art houses when we announce them to say, I am already a Sundance volunteer. Can I help you out? I think there's something exciting both about the volunteer spread, the our artists, our Sundance artists, over the years who live in all these different places, that the energy can manifest and pop up from where people are, not just by us shipping them all in on aeroplanes to- It's to great
4: that you're supporting these local communities. That's mm-hmm. part of what I like about what you're telling us.
3: Can I just give a shout out to Devon, who is a Sundance volunteer, and who I think <laughs> won, the, won the Gail Stevens Volunteer Award uh, <laughs> in one of these past couple of years. So thanks for the question.
1: I always like Volunteer Day at Sundance. It's like, uh, it feels like it's a big celebration. I know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so we had actually a, a couple of interesting questions that were along similar lines in terms of access, and I wanted to circle back on that because, Carrie, you made a really interesting point about the, the potential to get these films out to a wider set of media. And, and, and as, as you all know, this is an area of extreme interest to me. You know, we developed something with the Roger mm-hmm. Ebert uh, fellowship getting critics to Sundance a number of years ago and that that sort of set a precedent that I think on some level led to some other efforts that brought to, to have a more diverse uh, media presence. Uh, Brian Newman here is asking if this is an opportunity for a more diverse set of critics to see the films virtually. We have also Rachel Shapiro asking about industry level access adjustments and whether this could level the playing field a bit. And, you know, I have to be totally transparent. I have always appreciated um, having a certain amount of access at Sundays, you know, because you have different tiers. And I'm curious to know just how democratized uh, a, a festival we're looking at. If, if you're a member of media, do you get the same level of access no matter who you are or are, you know, same for industry? Or Are we going to see different levels of exclusivity sort of tailor-made to this new environment?
4: Are there cutoffs for certain kinds of screenings?
1: Today?
3: Um, I, I think we're too early to talk about exactly what levels are or process or credit. This is one of those questions that um, we need to stare at and 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 think about um, once again in terms of what the filmmakers want as the grounding thing, um, what the rights holders, people who come to sell their films or people who come to launch their films, what is the optimal way that we can support them in achieving their goals? Like I said earlier. Um, that said, I think it's an incredible opportunity as I said before to broaden access and Eric you've done great work on this Uh, we've had our own for several years we worked with you we've also had um, our own uh, inclusion initiative working with um, stipending um, members of the press who come from uh, historically underrepresented groups and it's been it's been incredibly successful for the festival because it's actually brought more dimensional discourse uh, around the films. And I think it's helped the films uh, and even buyers recognize the, the audiences that are out there based on having different perspectives mediating the work. So we're deeply committed to that. But in terms of how that manifests in, in, in the mechanics of the festival, I, I'm just afraid it's too early for us
4: to say.
1: It'll be fascinating to follow this conversation throughout not just how you think it through, but how festivals in general think it through as it- I was gonna say, you're
4: gonna learn from what happens to the fall festivals and from their practices and what works and doesn't work in this virtual space. And and I
3: really wanna just echo what Tabitha said earlier. Um, We are in awe of our colleagues at the fall festivals, at all the festivals. And um, it's just been incredible to feel the solidarity and to be in dialogue with them to learn. So um, agreed.
1: Um, this is a good question to bring us full circle. From Debbie Gold, that is, is saying, "I'm a veteran Sundance attendee, 15 years in a row, including 2020. How can I be of service to my most favorite festival in Gatlin?
2: Oh, that almost Debbie. That almost that made me tear up. Actually, I mean, I think one of the um, one of the things that has been so remarkable about this period, although it is full of loss in lots of ways we are finding other things like the generosity of people in all dimensions of this, not just, not just putting on a, a festival, but to really raise their hand and say, how can I help? So Debbie, I think, um, I think one of the things is to continue to be a, a cheerleader for us, to, um, to see the films that you can see and be a cheerleader for the artists. Um, and to, I mean, I think in this year, we are all trying things that uh, we haven't tried before, and, and that's as it should be. Not all of them are going to work. We are going to make mistakes, and uh, we will ask for people's generosity and patience. All of the decisions we make will be driven by values, so we'll be trying it for the right, for the right reasons. Um, but I think, you know, Debbie, just, just kind of getting people around you excited to engage in the festival. And, you know, one of the things, again, back to the Toni Morrison thought about what can I do from where I am? I think if people can experience their first Sundance Festival from their local art house or from their bedroom in a way that they never would have been able to make it before, that makes me very happy. So I'd ask you just to tell your friends and people who either love independent film or don't know that they love it yet, just engage with us in any way they can.
1: Before we let you guys go, can you uh share some viewing recommendations what you've been paying attention to these days this question comes up for everybody now because we seem to be living in a in a moment where people just love sharing that stuff and given the prominent influential perch that you both hold at this film festival i think it would be really interesting to hear what you've been what you've been watching outside of the submission process that you obviously can't talk about
3: I'm gonna I'm gonna start because Tabitha will undoubtedly have more interesting answers. So I'll leave her the last word. Uh, I've been the uh, uh, series. I've been watching series. I've been watching The Restaurant. Um, on Sundance now. I don't know if you've seen that one, but, uh, yeah, it's pretty good. It's sort of a, it's great check it out. I've been watching. Um, I started, I just started money heist, which is I think old, but uh, interesting. And, um, and then I loved, and it's, it's done now, but just personally loved Mrs. America. I thought it was great.
2: Good ones. Um, I'm, at the moment i'm watching um at the moment I'm watching a ton of submissions, so very little else, but as a kind of to go somewhere else uh I may destroy you the Michaela yeah, cult. Oh, that's good and it's yes. just like you know when you just feel like you're seeing something you haven't seen before, and it has to our earlier discussions a kind of authenticity of perspective, and the there's a kind of swagger to it like try and stop me. This is how I'm going to do it. This is how I'm going to take form and shake it up. And that the, the, I, I love it for its formal, um, uh, construction. And I also love it that it's just so purely her. Nobody else could have done that. And I kind of love it that it was on the BBC. I imagine there are lots of letters from, Disgruntled people in Tunbridge Wells. That reference won't mean anything. We're <laughs> writing it. What is this on my screen? So I love that. And the other thing we're doing as a family every night now we have um, we have movie night every night. Just try and watch any film with two eight-year-olds. Uh, we've gone through um, John Ford and had to have important conversations about <laughs> representation. Of- serious context there. <laughs> <laughs> serious. A of, there are a lot. There are so. One of the things this moment has done. Is made us even more aware of the impact of cinema and cinema history and the both the joy of it and the problems with it that need to be pointed out so eight year old children don't go off thinking that that's an acceptable thing to do anymore.
4: Nora so, has never forgiven me for making her watch The Man Who Shot Liberty <laughs> That's
2: no, you're Still a star story. point. <laughs> but Busby Berkeley, big hit in this household. Busby in
1: yeah, we'll have to we'll have to bring you two back at some point and just dedicate a whole hour to talking through uh binge viewing options because this climate is certainly opening up a lot of questions and that This
4: was fun. Thank you so much. I hope the grilling wasn't too torturous, but it was fun was for it? us. Thanks for
3: having us. So we really appreciate it.
2: And thanks for the thanks for everyone except Sean Farnell, because that was a tricky one. Uh, <laughs> Thank you for, uh, for tuning in and also asking questions, really appreciate it. And we should be held to account
3: for- We're what open do. for questions. We're open just to answer what can you do for us, from my perspective, uh, to deme- what Tabitha already answered. Um, please feel free, if you have uh, questions or comments uh, about Sundance's work, you can, you can reach us, you can ask them.
1: Good luck Sundance. Maybe we'll see Keep you- Keep up part- the good work.